Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Rong Fu, an actor you might have seen recently as Sergeant Melissa Jordan in Pretty Hard Cases, or as Alex Malari Jr.'s once and future soulmate Avery in Hello Again. Both of those shows are on CBC Jam. And Rong is at the helm of the USS Enterprise as Lieutenant Jenna Mitchell in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which premiered last week on Bell Sci-Fi Channel and Crave in Canada and Paramount Plus in the US. And that gave me a good hook to schedule this episode. Rong picked Kill Bill Volume 1, the first half of Quentin Tarantino's spectacular mashup of 70s grindhouse action in kung fu cinema. It's the movie that introduced the world to Uma Thurman as the bride, an assassin bent on delivering bloody retribution to the former associates who betrayed her and left her for dead, and to Vernita Green and Oren Ishii, played respectively by Vivica A. Fox and Lucy Liu. You've seen Kill Bill, right? You know. It's a fever dream of action cinema, with fights choreographed by the legendary Yun Wu Ping and executed in high style by cinematographer Robert Richardson and editor Sally Menke. Almost 20 years later, it's still all killer, no filler. This is someone else's movie. Kill Bill Volume 1, I think, is what I would consider like a pretty formative film in my life. Um, I think it was the first film that I've ever watched that made me feel inspired. You know, because I was 13 when the film came out. And, you know, up until then, um, you know, like when I was 13, I I was like, you know, that was when I started acting, like I I joined my middle school's drama club. So I started getting like the acting bug and I was getting more and more serious with it. But, you know, I hadn't considered myself like an artist or an actor in in any sense of the way. Um, Mm -hmm. And watching Kill Bill was the first time, like I, I felt like the world opened up to me in terms of what cinema could be. And what really great acting looks like or like the kind of acting that really excites me. Um, and it was the first time that like a film that made me fall in love with film. Okay. And yeah, you know, and Tarantino would be, I mean, I know for a lot of people who are around that age when he was coming up, like even if mm-hmm. they were 18, when they saw Pulp Fiction or, mm-hmm. or um, generation after generation of, of people are, sparking to his stuff the same way I did when I was, I guess I would have been 24 and saw Reservoir Dogs mm-hmm. and just thought, oh, this is a perfect movie and it's made for me and and all movies should be like this. And then yeah. you, you, it's because I, I was kind of vaguely aware of the references. I mean, I was lucky enough that I had seen City on Fire so I could plug that in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had seen the killer and, and all the stuff that he was influenced by as well. Cause we're, mm-hmm. we're not that far apart in age, he and him and me, but what he does, this, this cultural garburator thing he does where he just absorbs an entire genre and then reflects it back at people. And it feels fresh and new again. Mm-hmm. The, the thing about kill bill that I love so much is that it's his last movie where he's not even pretending that realism matters. Yeah. Right? Like it is so uniquely its own thing. It's a cartoon about martial arts movies and, and black exploitation films and Westerns and the, the two films together. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it folds in all of these pieces uh, while also building on the Fox force five monologue that Uma Thurman has about yeah. the career she had in Pulp Fiction. And yes. it's exhilarating. And honestly, it's his, I think it's his artistic peak, the two Kill Bills. 
Yeah, like I would totally agree with you. Like I, after I watched Kill Bill, I was like, I need to watch more of this director. I was like the first time I was ever interested in a film director, mm-hmm. you know, like before it's just like, whatever, I watch movies that are entertaining, they're fun. Um, but watching uh, uh, Kill Bill, uh, the first Kill Bill, like and then I followed like traced back to his work, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and kind of saw the building blocks of what culminated in Kill Bill. And even his films after, I think they all hold their own merits and like, uh, and have like their own peaks. But for me, Kill Bill is just like this wild dream of like a cinephile's uh, pe- like treasure box. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so full of um, uh, incredible bits and it's, it's, it's a perfect way to do an homage. I think that's, that's also kind of what's so exciting about it too. It's just, it's, that's how you do an homage. That's how you culturally appropriate like, yeah. I don't know. It's not cultural appropriation. It's cultural. It's what feels to me like a really good example of cultural appreciation of telling stories of a culture that you don't belong to and doing it really well. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, I, I think of it as somebody showing you all the things he loves mm-hmm. about the movies he loves. Yeah. You know, in the same way of I love this scene from Black Lizard and I love this scene from um you know, every Shaolin Temple movie with 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 the student and the master and all of these yeah. things. And then, of course, he's casting people like Sonny Chiba and Gordon Liu because, of course, he can. He's Quentin mm-hmm. Tarantino at the height of his powers. He's got Disney money behind him because they've bought Miramax and, and the Weinsteins are just funneling all their support to him because, yeah. of course, he's their golden boy. And, and in a weird way, I had this whole other thesis about how um, Harvey Weinstein's uh, insistence on isolating and protecting his best filmmakers also his most valuable filmmakers as assets seems to have kind of held them back. I I think I talked about it in an episode with John Ross Bowie. Well, you know, if all you're hearing is that you're a genius and every decision you make is brilliant, you're never Mm -hmm. going to evolve past a certain Mm -hmm. point. And so you look at people like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and Lassie Hallstrom, who got sort of sucked into the prestige pipeline at Miramax Mm -hmm. around the same time. And they just sort of leveled off and, kept doing the same thing. And with Tarantino, he switches genres and varies things up. So it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not immediately detectable, but he's yeah. like, the reason I think Kill Bill is so good is because it doesn't have to be about anything other than what it is. And because mm-hmm. Thurman is so great at carrying the emotional um, through line of mm-hmm. like, it's a simple revenge story. She doesn't have to do anything other than look angry, but she does. She brings so much more into it. Yeah. And she brings so much like vulnerability into it and like sensitivity into it and, and like fierceness. And I, I would say that's like, for like a lot of the cast, I mean, like, yeah, like I, I rewatched Kill Bill this morning because I had to get up early. <laughs> oh, and I was wow. just like, well, it's uh, 7.30 in the morning. I might as well watch Kill Bill. <laughs> um, it's a great way to start, but it, it just reminded me of all the reasons I fell in love. Like that opening scene where she gets into that knife fight with um, uh, oh, Vernita, Vernita Green, yeah. you know, and the moment where, you know, it's just she pulls up in the pussy wagon and it's like a villain walks into like the set of a Disney movie. <laughs> Uh, and then you know the, they get into that fight and then you just see the you just see the uh, school bus pull up and you see her daughter walking and just these two women at a standstill and without any dialogue they're communicating so much vulnerability and desperation and and and, and negotiating yeah it's um, the sense of mutual respect between yeah. enemies right that you never yeah. see and it's of course it's we find out it's because they've known each other for years and years yeah but it's all there. It's all mm-hmm. on the screen. Yeah. 
And the um, and then the more time we spend, the more layers we unpack in the bride's story we get, mm-hmm. which gets us to Oren, which again is a character who could have been, especially with Lucy Liu, mm-hmm. at her like her most self-aware and 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 charismatic. Mm-hmm. That could have been a one-note joke, but we we understand everything about her yeah. by the time they square off because we've already spent that time. We've had the flashback, we've had the the quick like the origin story, if you will. Yeah. But but Lucy Liu is just not, there's no condescension. There's no sense that this is a genre. Like none of the actors is in a, a pastiche. They're not, they're, mm-hmm. their characters are living these lives. And I think that's the gift of, of Tarantino as well that comes through in Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs is mm-hmm. we're seeing heightened genre stories presented as though they were, you know, ordinary everyday worlds where yeah, yeah. it's about what these guys do when they're not shooting each other. Yeah. And and I agree. Like I I I love and idolize Lucy Liu and seeing her as Oren Ishii in that film. I like it. You know, I was like, I felt like I found my superhero. And and it's because you know, like yeah, she's fierce and uh, uh, but she she also like like it also had had that same caliber in her performance of showing us who this character is, but um, beneath the facade of just being. You know, it could be very one note dragon lady type of role, right? Exactly, and she yeah. absolutely didn't do that. And another thing, like, you know, like what I loved about that movie was just that animation flashback to tell Oren's story. You know, I'm a huge anime fan. And so to see an anime sequence in a Hollywood movie. It just blew my mind and it was done so well. Like it's, it's, it was, that piece was produced by production IG, which is one of the best animation houses in, in, uh, in, uh, in Japan. And, you know, just, you know, also just for him to, as a director, to bring in um, other collaborators and other directors who really knew what they were doing and to have their work showcased together. I think that was, you know, just really great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just want to roll back a little bit. You said you were 13 when you saw this. So I'm assuming you saw it on video as opposed to. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking about it. I was just like, I was like, I wouldn't have been old enough to get into the theater. And I think, I think it was a movie that my dad might've downloaded for me. And I remember, because I remember, I have a memory of watching it at home in our family's living room while my parents were like on the side. And I remember like watching some of the violent sequences being a little bit like am I allowed to see this <laughs> like you know so I think that's that's I think my yeah I'm, I'm sorry but yeah my dad I think he downloaded the movie for me illegally <laughs> I think the statute of limitations is up and also at this point yeah. Harvey Weinstein can you know suck he it. can suck it uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah but the um the the but it's perfect for that age too right mm-hmm. like it's it's um weirdly enough it's a it's a movie about embracing, uh, well, it's a movie about unlikely people embracing authority and power and agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not good people, mm-hmm. but there are no good people in the movie. So that's fine. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, the honor among thieves things has been thrown away because the bride's been betrayed. The whole plot yeah. is about her revenge. So we can get on board with her. I mean, it's the same way he seduces us in Reservoir Dogs and, and mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown less so because Jackie Brown yeah. does have, upstanding characters and it's the anomaly mm-hmm. it's the outlier mm-hmm. um but tarantino works best i think in in stories where we get to figure out who the best bad people are 
and, yeah. and the bride is easily his most justified hero. Although, you know, you could, you can kind of I, I, rewatching it this time. I just remembered, Oh, I don't didn't remember it being quite so rapey. Like the whole rape revenge aspect of it is really unpleasant. I mean, it has to be right. Because it's, yeah. it's a heightened world. Yeah. But it's one of those things where I don't think you could or should kind of, it's, it's weird, right? Like his, his, his artistry justifies it in the moment, but yeah, it's I mean, pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, I remember coming to like the rapey parts, but it's, it's also, and of course, like, you know, like now we're li- living in a post me too world, mm-hmm. our sensitivity, our knowledge, our understanding of these things are so much greater than what it was back in, you know, 2003. Um, but I will say like, you know, yeah, it's cringy, but it's also immediately and almost very quickly satisfied. Uh, like yeah. it's, it's almost just as satisfying, right? You know, she wakes up from her coma and immediately she kills two rapists. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let him get away with it. Get your revenge. You know, same thing with Oren's character. You know, that line of like, lucky for her, like um, the Yakuza boss was a pedophile. Um, and she used that to get her revenge. I was like, yeah, it's like super cringy, but she got her revenge. And it's like these morally great characters that kind of, um, are able to, uh, to, uh, that, 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 you know, have agency and are able to satisfy their, their goals. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, They assert a morality for themselves that doesn't exist in the world. So you can't argue against it. Right. I mean, that's, that is the problem with, with genre fiction in general, the stuff that that Tarantino is mining and plumbing is that the things he's inspired by are far, far worse. He actually finds mm-hmm. an emotional underpinning to make it all make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like, I thought this time that it felt, I, it's not that I, it's not that I'm suddenly trying to soften the film because that would be ridiculous. The, the mm-hmm. brutality of Kill Bill, the violence, never mind yeah. sexuality, but the violence is fun. Like it's, you're, in, yeah. you're encouraged to enjoy yeah, slashing and brutality and and, and the, it's the artistry like, of it. Yeah. yeah, like the way the blood splatters out. It's absolutely absurd, you know. Like no one gets their head chopped off, and it's just like a funnel, like yeah. <laughs> not a funnel, like a fountain, well, a, a fountain, a spout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're encouraged um, to aestheticize it too. Like part of the fun of it is watching a level Hollywood talent apply themselves to B movies, right? To the pulp stuff. Yeah. The, the fight with the crazy 88s is, I mean, I remember, I saw that theatrically, I think I saw it twice with an audience mm-hmm. and each time the room goes quiet and then people start to realize that they can enjoy it. Yeah. Because when it shifts to black and white, there's that yeah. tension and then you start realizing, oh no, it's just so it looks cool. And the room will just start to go, ooh, and just enjoy it. And it was yeah. so much fun with the crowd. And it's fun. To, it's it's easier to have fun with. Like, I mean, I typically, as an audience member, like, I don't love like gory violence things. You know, like usually sometimes, like if if we, like you know, like one of the most cringy movies I watched was like Twenty Four Hours, where like you know he had like when he tried to like cut off his hand from the rocks. I was just like, I can't watch that. I can't watch that stuff. But when it's super stylized, like Kill Bill, yeah, there there's an element of fun into it because you know it's not real. You know it's choreography. You know it's props um and actually very interesting like when i when i was younger and i and that crazy 88 scene um switched to black and white 
Like I, I didn't know why that just, that artistic choice was made. I, I thought it was censorship. Uh-huh. Like I thought it was like, oh, they must have turned it to black and white because it would have been too gory and audiences wouldn't like that. So in my mind, I'm always like, there has to be a version out there that's in full color, that's uncensored. Yeah, you want to see what they kept from you. That's yeah. that's the beauty of this sort of movie is that yeah. it's transgressive and trashy and just the right way to pull you in even further. I, I think that is probably true that they, I mean, I know it was shot in color and and, mm-hmm. and changed to black and white in post-production, um, probably to keep the R rating. But uh, I think also if it had been the intention to to release it in color, it would have happened by now just because yeah. Miramax never missed a trick. Like they, they released yeah. the, you know, the full version of Grindhouse a couple of years after the the theatrical cuts came out and they, they would have found a way to milk a couple of extra bucks out of it. <laughs> that was just their deal. Yeah. Um, but it's better in black and white. Like it, it just, yeah, feels, it, it feels right. It feels more like the early Japanese gangster films that I saw at Cinematheque, you know, in the nineties mm-hmm. when they had the revivals and, yeah. and found these treasures that no one had seen on a movie screen in, you know, outside of the Chinatown theaters mm-hmm. that screen them without subtitles. And so if you go, you're lost Yeah, uh, as, as I was as a young guy, anyway, uh, trying to, to see stuff. And um, it has, as you say, it's nostalgic, but it's also fresh and new because mm-hmm. it's being presented through a lens that you just haven't encountered before. And of course that lens yeah. is a gibbering white, fanboy <laughs> um, but he respects the material in a way that a lot of other material, ones yeah yeah and he doesn't try to it doesn't feel like he um asserts his ego too much into it you know what i mean like i, I really feel like the um the, the the creatives that he brought on to collaborate like really got to put their stamp on the work um you know like yeah like he like just you know with the with the just even like, and the animated part, right? He could very well have, you know, used animators from Disney to, sure, <laughs> to try yeah. and animate that sequence. But it's like, no, he, he went there because, you know, he understood that anime is a, a very distinct style of, of um, it's a very distinct style that exists kind of only in Japan. Like there is, it's, there's a sensitivity to it. There's a sensibility to um the, the design, the movements, the, uh, the content that, you know, we just don't have here. Yeah. And he, yeah. and, and by hiring, you know, uh, Yun Ping for the choreography, mm. this, this Hong Kong master who, yeah. you know, obviously the matrix had raised his profile, but he was revered as a God by people who grew up watching his movies yeah. like, like Tarantino. And that also keeps the film honest in its, like it, <sighs> I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm dismissing it, but but Tarantino resists the opportunity because it would have been easier to have one person or one guy or just you know, like do one thing, but he mm-hmm. refuses to collapse Japanese cinema, Hong Kong cinema. There, there's mm-hmm. he keeps those spaces separate, right? There's anime yeah. for Oren because she's Japanese, mm-hmm. and then there's Gordon Liu. Coming from Hong Kong cinema, he gets Hong Kong people to work on that. And the yeah. textures, I mean, most of that doesn't pay off until the second movie, but yes. the textures of each storyline and each nation to mm-hmm. the point where the black and white Western stuff in part two feels like it was shot in Spain. Yeah. Or Italy, yeah. even though it wasn't. It's just, it looks like those movies. It, it references the Westerns that he loved, the spaghetti Westerns, the cheap ones mm-hmm. and the Django movies 
which he like he loved them so much that he named a character Django who had no reason to be called Django, <laughs> just so yeah. he could have Franco Nero show up for one scene in Django Unchained. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, that's when his tendencies are starting to get in the way of the stories he's telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Kill Bill, it's not tied to anything. Like there's no real mm-hmm. world to anything. You're dealing with a, a with a, a a California landscape filled with thugs, punks, and assassins. You're dealing with mm-hmm. a Japan that is so dominated by the Yakuza that there's no world beyond it. You're dealing mm-hmm. with uh, a China where there are Shaolin temples just waiting for people to show up and be trained. Yeah, just waiting for yeah. <laughs> white girls to come and learn yeah. Kung Fu. <laughs> In a really strange way, it's kind of welcoming because it does point out that the bride is so good at everything she does that she is mm-hmm. like she she applies herself to become the best and there's a work ethic, um, even to bringing your body back after five years in a coma. Yeah. But it it never really shows us who she was before she was an assassin, which I think is really smart. Certainly not in yeah. part one. Part one, she's yeah, a complete one. enigma who has no past except that she was a yeah. parent. She was a mother and lost her child, or thinks she lost her child, mm-hmm. uh, which gives us the single greatest ending of any Tarantino movie. I love that. The chill that goes through the room yeah, when Bill asks. Her, yeah. Does she, Does she know, know her daughter's still alive? Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. We haven't yeah. even seen Carradine's face yet. Yeah. And that was so great. Like this is this un, well, this unnamed pr- protagonist and an unnamed, like an unseen villain. <laughs> you know, it really keeps you, it really draws you in, in with the, with the mystery of it all. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. kind of, I, I, the thought experiment of would this have worked as a three hour, one, one sitting movie it's fascinating because I don't know that it would have had the same punch. No, I think it was really smart to have divided them in two because the part one, volume one, moves at such a fast pace. And there's so much different colors and cultures. And it really just, you know, you're really thrown in. And then I find volume two takes like a, like a slower pace. You know, mm-hmm. we kind of go back. A little, we have like these like slower scenes where she's, you know, at a campfire with Bill and, you know, the, the whole, like uh, the sections of her trying to get, getting, getting to bud feels like very quiet and drawn out and like, like a quiet more of a, you know, and so I feel like as an audience member, if I was going through all the adrenaline scenes of volume one and then, and then I feel, and then suddenly, uh, you know, get pushed into like a slow pace of volume two, I think I would just, I would get pretty antsy. Yeah. yeah Separating like, them this just, is not a good movie. Just turning kind of, you know. Yeah. Why isn't my heart still going? Like, yeah. why, why am I not on the edge of my seat anymore? But yeah. separating them is great because it gives you the contemplation and the space, at least in the first time around when mm-hmm. you actually had to wait. I think it was five months between the two films. Yeah. Uh, expectations could not have been higher. Yeah. And and it pays off. It just pays off in a more philosophical, simple way. And we don't yeah. really have to get into volume two here just because I don't think we necessarily have time, but also <laughs> the hook of volume one getting its own episode is so cool. Yeah. Uh, but the way it goes out in two is it's very, very satisfying. And I, I really like it a lot, but mm-hmm. volume one is the first line of cocaine, right? Like you're just, yeah. <laughs> you just jumped into it and, yeah. and moving at such a clip that um you want all movies to be like this. Like it's that thing yeah. where you're just watching it. I, I can only imagine what it would have, would have been like to be the first experience of Tarantino that you had, because it is like the purest stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was my, it was, uh, you know, it was like, you know, I was also like really surprised. I remember at the time 
of how inspired I felt by the movie as like a young woman. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was seeing, it was the first time I've ever seen female characters portrayed like that on, on screen where they're morally gray. I think, you know, for me, the bride, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more female antiheroes nowadays on like television and stuff. But for a long time, the bride was like, the only example of a female antihero. And I love the antihero. It's my favorite trope, but for a while, it was like for so long, I'm like, there's no other ones, you know? Hey, it's Norm. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know that the internet won. I'm finally starting that newsletter I've been talking about. It's called Shiny Things, and it'll be a weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming show. Basically, whatever I want to write about. I can do that now. You can take a look at shiny.things.ghost.io, where you can find an easy-to-click link at the Semcast Twitter account. If you like this podcast, I think it'll be right up your alley. Come visit. It feels like a love letter to film, and I know the film also had a lot of criticism for, you know, like, Tarantino hates women, and but I was like, no, I, I watched this film and I felt like a love for women and a love for... Um, for like kind of, you know, just, just the, the limitless possibility of, of, of the power that women can have, you know, like it's, it sounds really absurd, but like, it's, I guess not, but you know, it's just, you know, it doesn't get any more powerful than a woman seeking revenge and taking lives. Like that's pretty badass. It's the sword, right? Like it's the mm-hmm. intimacy of the sword and the intimacy of of beating Vernita half to death with her fists too. Like it's not mm-hmm. just people on opposite sides of the room unloading weapons at each other. These are mm-hmm. really personal because of course it is. It's a she has a kill list. It's it's a revenge mm-hmm. story. But these yeah. are deeply personal, very upsettingly intimate fights. Yeah, yeah. And like even even at the end of the of the scene with Vernita and, and her daughter is revealed to have witnessed it, you know, even for her to just you know very calmly be like, yeah, come yeah, find me like if that, you, that, come if you find still me feel raw about it, isn't that? How yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, and it's it's kind of like it's there's like this strange sense of honor attached to it. That's you know in a way that hurt, that makes you suddenly think this character's honorable after she just killed this girl's mom, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she has a code. Everybody has a code in these movies yeah. because that's just how they work. But because she's been betrayed, um, her code stays intact. Mm-hmm. And that that makes her admirable and honorable, but also furious. Like just yeah. the, the the way that the way that Thurman marches through the movie and just, mm-hmm. just sort of stalks everybody. Yeah. Um, without bothering. There are no disguises. There's no mm-hmm. subterfuge. She just shows up and starts mowing people down. And there's something yeah. incredibly satisfying uh, about watching Uma Thurman do that, particularly because this is someone who spent years being the girl mm-hmm. for other people, right? Like yeah. just just being. I remember um, the first time I interviewed her. The, the only time I've interviewed her actually was for Jennifer Eight. Um, which was 1992, I want to say, and it was oh, probably wow, her yeah. first studio picture after things like Dangerous Liaisons. It was like it was a, a thriller with um, from Bruce Robinson, who made With Nolan and I, and uh, and How to Get Ahead in Advertising, and, and yeah. he, had, he pitched this thriller, and they let him make it. And she plays a blind girl in danger. That's all mm-hmm. she gets to be. Yeah. Um, and we 
I interviewed her in a junket situation. So there are five or six people, five or six other reporters in the room with her. And, uh, and they're just like, tell us about the nude scene. She's like, it was a body double. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about the physical work? And like, she just wanted to talk about all the prep she'd done and all the work she'd done yeah. and playing against Andy Garcia, who's like 10 years older. And, and it was so clear that that's the only way the industry was willing to engage with her was you're a hot girl. Yeah. Do hot girl things. Talk mm-hmm. about sexy things. Yeah. And then to watch her just sort of refuse to be that and claim, like, even the way Terry Gilliam used her in Baron Munchausen, she's introduced as Venus and mm-hmm. uh, she's really only used for her beauty when she's so clearly able to do more. And then to see Tarantino use her in Pulp Fiction the way he did and just frame a whole segment of his movie about how cool she is and how smart she is and how on top of everything she is. And then mm-hmm. derail that with the heroine and how she has to be revived, all of it. Like yeah. never losing the sight of just how interesting Uma Thurman is when you put a camera on her. Yeah. And then to give her a sword. Like, yeah. It's just, of course she has to be this person. But yeah, I I, I, I don't see it as misogynistic. I mean, th- the bride goes through some awful stuff. Yeah. Um, but weirdly, it's all personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to random, you know, the way that if it was one of the movies that Tarantino is riffing on, she would be the girlfriend who gets killed in order to make the hero sad. So he goes off and fights. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, and she just refuses to die and mm-hmm. she is her own hero. And it just becomes something so much greater in the yeah. telling. Yeah. And, you know, it's, but, and, you know, and like, and it's still like weighted with like you know like the heart right you're like you still like walking through this movie with like the fierceness of motherhood yeah you know because she's fighting for you know this daughter that she thought she lost and so you know it's it's a film that like you know she's a killer and it's very easy to just like make her a killer but it's like no but she's also a mom like she there's there's no one definition of what this woman needs to be in this movie you know she doesn't need to be bill's love interest she doesn't need to be the bride or the mom or the or the assassin like she's all of it um and it's just fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so full it's a remarkable performance too like mm-hmm. it's not only is it a good role but she just gets everything out of it yeah yeah to the point where unfortunately like she almost died doing it she she um you know the story about the car crash right the, this came out a couple of years ago just read about that yeah like she it was like a, it's like a cut scene um where she she like rammed into a tree or something yeah she lost control of the car tarantino and and his um i don't know if his team assured her but tarantino assured her that it was safe and he needed her in the car to be seen driving it. And it's just a, it was just a driving shot and she, it was not safe. And she, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the details were, but she, I think her legs were trapped under the, um, under the front of the car and she was very badly injured. She's, she's apparently fine now, but yeah, it was awful. Um, And they just didn't say, they just, no one talked about it for, um, for years until, until the me too movement, um, brought up a whole bunch of other things yeah, and yeah. she got to speak out on that level about, about um, I, according to, well, I've got Wikipedia here in front of me mm-hmm. and I'm hoping it's true, but uh, Miramax finally released the footage in 2018 after Thurman went to police following the accusations of sexual abuse by Harvey Weinstein. Oh, so God. again, one more thing that, yeah. um, that Weinstein's sort of indulgence probably yeah. enabled. 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's so crazy that that was even like a car crash is like swept under the rug because, you know, it's, yeah, it's very unfortunate. Yeah. You don't want to kill the golden goose. Um, no. Ugh. And it's, yeah, I, 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 I have never spent more than an hour in a film set. Right. So I cannot mm-hmm. say that I believe anything is any film is worth endangering yourself for or or risking death for but oh yeah it's just it's one of those things where i know the scene isn't in the film so i don't i can force myself not to think about it while i'm watching it right because mm-hmm. it's not like twilight's on the movie where someone three people were killed and it completely affects the sequence that was like the, the absence of that sequence completely affects the piece of the movie that depended on it mm-hmm. but it is like an asterisk that doesn't go away that yeah i mean like uh, <laughs> I mean, the health and safety of like of, of actors is, you know, I mean, as an actor myself, I'm like, I wouldn't risk my life <laughs> doing something that's unsafe because it is like, you know, at the end of the day, like our bodies are our instruments. And if you take that away from us, it really impedes on our ability to work um, or at least work in the same capacity. And yeah, that's, yeah, I would be angry. Like, I think I've done like a show once where I brought my own costume piece and it ripped and I was so upset. Like imagine if I actually lost a finger or got a scream, you know? Yeah. 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 And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have Tom Cruise who's actively trying to kill himself in mission impossible movie after mission impossible movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jackie Chan. (laughs) Jackie Chan can't get insured. He's broken every bone in his body. He can't move his face anymore. It's like, that's not good. No, no. I think that's sometimes, you know, where, where I think in, I think Hollywood kind of, um, you know, sometimes glamorizes the extreme lengths that actors would go for the movie or for their roles, you know, like, you know, applauding actors for physically changing their bodies for roles, you know, whole aura around method acting. I think it's fucking bullshit. Like, it's so dumb. Like, putting on weight, gaining weight, like, yeah, sure. That's an incredible transformation, but it, we're like staying character, even when you're offset, mm. like, I'm sorry, but like, to me, that's not craft. The craft of acting is being able to do your job, your performance. When the cameras are rolling, when you step onto stage, it is not a performance art that you carry into your daily lives that you use to impede other people uh, or, or yeah. become a nuisance. Like that's not, that's not acting. That's like some kind of psychosis. Like it's, 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 that's like a, that's a pet peeve of mine. Cause I yeah. think it really creates this misconception of what acting is. And, you know, I've, I was very fortunate that I, I found acting early and I got into, you know, I kind of follow like a more institution institutional route in terms of getting training and, mm-hmm. um, and um, having that kind of access to, uh, learning about the craft, but, and, and understanding what it is. And, you know, where sometimes I find troubling is for people who, you know, may have not had, you know, the ability to follow their passion early or to um, pursue these kind of training opportunities. You see a lot in like the BIPOC community of, of you know, of um, um, that's a, you know, story you commonly hear, but then so that their only access is through the media and this, I, and, and, they, and I feel like like sometimes people can, people can be fed the wrong idea of what acting is. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good way to it, put it. And it makes me sad, right? It makes me, people think 
it's because especially to like acting is not like we don't have an instrument like you don't see the, there's no paintbrush um it's hard to see what the work is behind it um and all of these like sensationalism around method acting and about how this actor you know uh stayed in character the whole time and i'm like that's not that's not what acting is <laughs> like that's not sus- and furthermore that's just not sustainable yeah i, yeah. I keep falling back on what Robert Pattinson said a couple of years ago, or maybe even recent, more recently than that, he was just quoted as saying, like, you know, you only ever hear about it when people are being assholes, when they're playing mm-hmm. terrible people, yeah. and how important it is to be terrible all the time, and that's just not necessary. Yeah. And, yeah it's, and it gets um, glorified in a way, right? Like, I'm not shitting on method acting entirely. I think there are aspects of it that work, but it's, I, I think Hollywood has, like, this twisted version of it that is like you're a nuisance where you're a crazy person, you know, or you're, you know, doing unthinkable things. And it's, and that's not it. Right. Like. No, acting is, I mean, inherently collaborative, right? Like you have to be working with the people opposite you. Yeah. It's a a conversation. Yeah. To pushing them away. I mean, Sally Field is method, but I, I didn't even know. I interviewed her once and it came up and she just mentioned it. And I said, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. And she said, I know I don't, talk about it because I don't want people to think badly of me. Yeah. And uh, the real, like the real method, the immersion method and using, using elements of yourself as -hmm. a character, that's, that's a valid technique, but yeah. Yeah. And there, on the other hand, there's, you know, Jared Leto doing whatever he thinks (laughs) that was. Yeah. And it's, and unfortunately that's, that gets, you know, lumped in with what we generally think of that method, what method acting is. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm not trying to... I feel like I was just crapping on method acting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. don't mean I... to do that, but it's the, like that Hollywood, that kind of like weird media perception of what it is. It's, just, it's stunts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I feel like I've, we've gone, our, we've gone down this road, even though, as far as I know, nobody in Kill Bill is mm-hmm. method. None of those no. actors yeah. is method. And, um, and it wouldn't help the movie if they were. No, right? Like, I don't yeah. see how, yeah, certainly for, for an action film, you don't need it mm-hmm. because you're, you're dealing with a heightened reality anyway, and in sort of a, a keyed up version of, of emotion, but it's, it's an act, it's a stuff like action acting and, and this sort of acting isn't often appreciated either in the same mm-hmm. way. Like it's, it's a, it's just as respectable and maybe even more essential to selling the reality of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but t- what Tarantino does with actors is, is kind of miraculous that way, because he can find in something as quiet as Jackie Brown, he can find the, those little moments of dignity and compassion between Forster and, and Pam Greer, Robert Forster and Pam Greer, where he mm-hmm. can find whatever, like he can find a way to balance whatever De Niro and Samuel Jackson are doing where they're mm-hmm. completely incompatible yeah. Jackson is so big and De Niro mm-hmm. is so small, but they occupy the same space somehow and they breathe the yeah. same air. Uh, and in Kill Bill, everybody is going to 11 all the time and it's fun instead of off-putting. At no point yeah. do you ever feel like it's too much because the whole point of it is to be too much. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, yeah, he plays with that tension really well mm. of, of, of um, keeping things grounded and yet extraordinary. And, it, and, it, and they kind of mirror back at each other and, and, and you kind of, yeah, I kind of fall into this, this, 
curated world that's really indulgent and fun and fantastical, you yeah. know? And still yeah. like deeply human. Like and assassins. Human, yeah. Assassins have daughters and <laughs> yeah. and uh sorry, Yakuza crime lords have concerns about their heritage and being disrespected. Yeah. Like it's yeah. all it's weirdly relatable despite the fact that you can't relate to anything anyone is doing. You can relate to what they're feeling. Yes. Yeah. That's a really great way of putting it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, is there other than the origin story of, of inspiring you to think about cinema in a different way completely, is there anything of Kill Bill that you've taken onto your own palette? Is there stuff that you've used in your own work or borrowed or referenced or outright stolen? Mm, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think, like, uh, sorry, the word that comes to mind is permission, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, what I took from that film is just a permission to break all the rules you know and um eventually as i as i as i as i got older i learned that you know you have to know the rules first before you can break them to do it well yeah, i've heard that <laughs> um but it it was uh so, so i think that's that was just that just opened the door for me just like Ian, you can break the rules and you can you know um yeah like like forge your own way like tell whatever story you want to tell yeah, no, I'm just trying to think of, um, like, in terms of have I ever borrowed anything from Kill Bill in my own work? Um, no, I can't think I have. There was actually, um, when I was in fourth year of my of the acting conservatory at York, I remember we were, do, we were starting to do on-camera stuff, and, um, and I attempted to do uh, Lucy Liu's speech, uh, in that movie as like a, as like a monologue, right. Mm-hmm. To, as, a, as an exercise. And that was the first time I realized how difficult it was to, to have done what she did truly. Like I, it was always something that like, was like a piece um, that I've admired for so long. And I still do. I think it's a, such a fine piece of acting, the way she balances um, the anger, the fierceness, and also just like this uh, um, and warmth. Like oddly enough, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, trying that monologue on and just feeling like a complete fraud. I was like, I can't. Oh, yeah. And and it and it and it really, it it really taught me that I had so much to learn um, in terms of finding that balance. That it's not just of of like of you know. And I think what's also very compelling about Tarantino's work for actors specifically is. Um, he writes incredible dialogue, but it's it's always like um, there's an incredible amount of subtext behind it, and that's really hard to tap into without you know having done the work that's required. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. His monologues are always yeah. like they're almost always um, diversionary technique. Right. Mm-hmm. The characters yeah. are saying it to buy time for something. For something else. Yeah. And it's up to us to figure it out. And it's up to the actor to suggest whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And other than, you know, Bill's monologue at the end of volume two, which was lifted from some other um, screenwriter somewhere, some other uh, comic. It's like the Clark Kent to Superman's joke to the world. That's yeah. that's a pre-existing thing that Tarantino yeah. heard somewhere and decided he could, he could use. <laughs> 
And it's the only one where Bill doesn't have any other strategy. He's just, he's just spouting off because that's who he is. But at the end of a four hour journey, it's great because we are less interested in hearing where he's going than for the bride to just fucking kill him already. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Why are you letting him waste your time? And in that case, it's the bride who's playing him by letting him talk. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's this great uh, final flourish of the story because after all of the individual justifications and all of the other monologuing arguments that we've experienced with all the other people on the list, here we are with a guy who's just talking and it's meaningless. Yeah, it's absolutely meaningless. Because the bride is finally getting what she wants. Yeah, and yet that's the only thing that comes to his mind right now, which is also kind of, you know, has its own kind of, sadness or like a humanity to it right of in a way he just wants to spend his last moments telling this antidote about superman yeah yeah just to buy himself a little more time it is kind of tragic yeah but by that point we're so on side with with the bride that it's okay you can kill him it's fine you can kill him (laughs) yeah and it happens so fast and so quietly too right like it's not a big sword fight it's uh it's a very quick like thing with the fist, you know? Five finger death punch. Five finger death punch, yeah. Again, it's just, and she can just deliver stuff like that. The dialogue as well as the physical mm-hmm. side of it, just to make it snap and, and make us feel, oh, yeah. So now again, I am afraid I have to watch all four hours of it again, again. Because <laughs> again yeah. That's, that's the beauty of this. That's why I love it so much. Just talking about it makes you re-experience all of it. And then you want to feel the feeling. You're, you're yeah. sort of, you're chasing the next hit. Yeah. And every time I watch it, because I've been watching it for, you know, almost 20 years now. Just about, yeah. (laughs) And every time, because I'm going through different, you know, as I'm going through different stages of my life and, uh, you know, as I grow older, like I'm I'm catching on to like references I never got before, uh, you know, like, and like moments that I, that I'd never struck me a different way. So it's, it's a, you know, I I just, it's, it's a great, it's, it's one of the, my favorite films because, for that very reason that it's one that you can kind of keep going back to and still discover new things because there's just so much. Yeah. Well, and, and have you chased down the the source material? Have you, you know, like found the lady snowblood films or, or followed up on some of the things that he was referencing? Um, no, but I think, I think uh, one of the ones that I did was um, that I did tricks crack down was a uh, Rashomon. Mm-hmm. No, is that, am I saying it right? No. Uh, Rashomon. Yeah. The Kurosawa yeah, film. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, don't, I know it's not directly, um, uh, connected to Kill Bill, but it was, I do remember like reading about his inspirations and that was one of them. And yeah, kind of seeing, it was actually my first time seeing like a classical Japanese film Oh yeah, uh, and to see uh, Japanese cinema. And I can definitely see like echoes of that in the work. Um, yeah. I never watched uh, old Japanese cinema before. Like I've seen older, like Chinese cinema, but yeah, that was my first introduction. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of these movies. You can just come away with a, uh, you know, a dozen things that you can follow up on and, and other stuff to build on, but they exist on their own if you want them to. Like they are, he is, he is good enough at pastiche that he can create something that stands alone. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm just going to go watch it again. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Rong Fu, who you can watch right now and hello again in Pretty Hard Cases on CBC Gym and in Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Bell Sci-Fi and Crave in Canada and Paramount Plus in the U.S. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did.
You can find Wrong on Twitter at Wrong Ideas, R-O-N-G-I-D-E-A-S. And you can find Kill Bill Volume 1 on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the U.S. and E1 Alliance in Canada. It's also streaming on Prime Video and Crave in Canada and HBO Max in the U.S., and you can rent it or buy it on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which currently aren't available anywhere else. And check out my brand new weekly newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny.things.ghost.io. I know that's a lot. There's links on the Semcast Twitter page. And that's all the pitching. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.